Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And if you want to reach out to me, please shoot me an email. You can reach me at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is June 17th, 2023. And wow, it's been over two months now since I've done an episode. I think that's my longest hiatus. And I have really been working hard on this new project that I've talked about in prior episodes. We were hoping to launch that thing in late April or early May, but the timetable has gotten pushed back a little bit because we have so much content and we're trying to get it packaged just right. And it's just a lot of uh, tedious work, but but fun work. But I've been paying attention to what's been going on in the real world, you know, as I've been in my little cubby hole with my blinders on. And, and some really interesting things have happened just over the last six weeks. And a lot of this I had predicted, you know, going back to the post-Austin environment, to the nil debacle in the summer of 2021, then when the Republicans didn't get the Congress that they wanted after the midterm elections, they changed their strategy. So we're now seeing the full-on assault in Congress. This is the Power Fives and NCAA's blitzkrieg on Congress, where you have all of the forces being brought together and being strategically deployed in a way to ensure that you can flatten your target and get what you want. So you have the NCAA and Power Five leaders descending on Washington to influence an arm twist to try to get this protective federal legislation. You've got their lawyers, lobbyists, public relations people. You've got a compliant sports media. And you have all of the satellite stakeholders in the big-time college sports industrial complex literally coming together to steamroll through Congress. This is a comprehensive, complete assault on the rights of college athletes. And it's breathtaking, honestly. But I predicted this. You know, I hate to say I told you, but I've had so many people tell me that there's no way in hell that Congress is going to do anything on college sports. I just don't see it that way. And these people are not going away. They are not going away. They are in this game big. They are in this game bold. They've hired the the best of the best to pursue their interests in D.C. And this is an attack plan that is going to be sustained until they get their way. And that sense of single-minded purpose is reflected in the interim policy. When the NCAA and Power Five didn't get what they wanted from Congress in their initial assault in Congress, in beginning really in 2019, then in hearings through 2020, and then into 2021, they didn't just go away. They, they put a, a placeholder in their game plan, and they always intended to come back to do uh, exactly what has transpired over the last month. I'm going to get into the details of that here in a minute. But the interim policy really, I think, says it all. So after the NCAA got its butt kicked in Austin, after it had to fall on its sword when it didn't get last-minute preemption from Congress in June of 2021, it came out with this temporary flag of surrender through the interim policy. But the interim policy is interim until what? One of two things happens. First, 
the NCAA changes its rules on name, image, and likeness, which it never intended to do and has not done and will not do. Or two, the NCAA and Power Five get federal protections and immunities from the United States Congress that would make them untouchable if they get preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees. They will be literally untouchable. They, they are m- moving much closer to their goal than I think people understand and what's happened over the last month is perfect proof of that. But there's no plan B. One of the things I'm going to talk about is a dog and pony show symposium. But Charlie Baker was there. NCAA President Charlie Baker was at that symposium. It was uh, put on by the University of Arizona. They have an office in D.C., some kind of a policy legislative office there, and they, they put this thing together. It was part of the grand assault that occurred June 7th, 8th, and 9th which is you know, one of the things in the timeline I'm, I'm going to talk about. But he was saying, look, we need to be thinking about a plan B here. If we don't get what we want from Congress, the NCAA does not have a plan B. They have one plan, and it is Congress, Congress, Congress. All right, so I've got my stack here. I want to start working that stack and, and go through all these things. But before I do, I just also want to point out something that happened the first week of May, an important book came out. And the title of the book is The NCAA and and the Exploitation of College Profit Athletes, subtitled An Amateurism That Never Was. And this is just a fantastic book. It is a grand synthesis of the most important issues in college sports, really going back to its, its earliest iterations. But it's timely right now because it talks about the athlete as employee, talks about Title IX, and you have some just brilliant scholars who've come together, and they probably have over a century of experience with their research and their writing on college sports. And I just wanted to put that out there, because this is the kind of thing that people should be reading. Right now, you know, when we're in the midst of this insanity that's going on in Washington, what does it all mean? What's the context and you know that's what we're trying to do to get to athletes. This book is probably more geared towards a, like a New York Times readership audience, but it's really well done. And I just want to just give it a plug here because you should make some space on your bookshelf for it. It's written by um, Richard Southall, Professor Richard Southall, University of South Carolina, Mark Nagel also a professor at the University of South Carolina, Professor Ellen Starowski, who is at Ithaca University, Professor Richard Karcher, who is at Eastern Michigan University, and Professor Joel Maxey, who is at Drexel. I I bought the copy. I had one reserved. Uh, I have it in hard copy. It's now out in paperback. It's a little more affordable, but I can't recommend this book enough. And in this project that we're working on, we're going to have a list of resources, kind of the essential reading as we see it, and this will be at the top of the list. Anyway, let's now talk about what's going on here, and I'm going to do it categorically rather than chronologically, and I want to talk about the legislation that has been proposed. So since May 19th, four bills have been circulated or proposed. So Three of these four bills really are still kind of in the internal vetting process. They're being circulated among stakeholders, and we don't have a final draft. We don't know what the final bill is going to look like or what the co-sponsorship may look like if if we have co-sponsorship. And I'm going to talk about each one. Then we have one bill 
that's out there. It's gone through the process. It's a formal proposal. And we'll talk about that too. But I really just want to focus on the the themes here rather than breaking down each bill. I'm going to hold off on that until we see the final version. But there are some interesting features. And I think an important theme that comes from the structure of these bills, and it's very much what I predicted after the summer of 2021 and after the midterm elections, the NCAA Power Five and their lobbyists, their extremely talented lobbyists, and public relations people, they are changing their strategy, their short-term strategy to just try to get their foot in the door, to get Congress to cross this Rubicon, which has been such a formidable barrier for decades, to get Congress to actually legislate in a substantive way in the regulation of college sports. They've, they've kind of put their toe in the water with uh, the EADA, which is a financial disclosure law designed to test Title IX compliance. You have SPARTA, uh, the Sports Agents Responsibility and Trust Act of 2004. I think I got that right. And that was designed to regulate agents. It's really a toothless tiger. And some of these bills would amend SPARTA to bring in more bad actors. So agents were the bad actors. Now we want to bring in the boosters and the collectives. So this is a, a, a bad actor extravaganza, the, the proposals that have come out. And the NCAA and Power Five are just in this binary world where they wear the white hat. And anybody who could compete with revenue streams, you know, with their business interests, they're bad actors. And so we got to regulate the ever-living hell out of them. And you have to remember, too, that they NCAA doesn't have direct regulatory authority over these third parties because those people aren't in the NCAA system. They're not members of the NCAA. The NCAA has no jurisdiction over them. So they try to regulate them indirectly through these draconian penalties on the people they can regulate, like the member institutions. Then they try to get Congress and state legislatures to adopt their thinking to bring the bad actors to heel through the power of federal and state law. And that's what they're doing here with these uh, bills and the expansion of the bad actor class under Sparta. And after I summarize these bills for you, uh, I want to talk about an interesting IRS policy memo that came out on May 23rd of 2023, right in the heat of all these bills being released. It's really interesting. And it's the kind of thing that got a, a, a tiny bit of coverage, but you really have to break it down a little bit to see that there's some red flags in that. Very interesting stuff. Then I'm going to talk about this assault on Congress with the stars of the NCAA and Power Five and Power Five Conference Commissioners. Nick Saban was making the rounds. We had this symposium, and I, and I want to go through some of the, the features of, of that symposium. And then I also want to talk about some letters that were ostensibly from student-athletes directly to Congress, telling Congress that all student-athletes agree with what the NCAA and Power Five want from Congress. Preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees. There's some really interesting features of those letters, particularly the Division I letter. That's where I'm going to anchor. And then we had a public relations blitz that was geared really, I think, to the White House. You know, a lot of people have been saying, look, even if something happens in Congress and the, and the Republicans get a quote-unquote bipartisan bill that gives them some of what they want right now, Biden's not going to sign that thing. I don't see it that way. And I'm going to talk about why, but the NCAA and Power Five launched some public relations initiatives designed to soften up the White House target. And I guess to lead off and just to, to highlight, I think, how the Power Five and the NCAA are thinking about this behind the scenes, just on a lark, I'm not sure even why I did this. But, you know, I'll, I'll occasionally go back and look at the Senate 
lobbying disclosure reports for the NCAA and Power Five to see if anything's changed, to see if they have referenced or brought in any more bills that they are lobbying for or against. And I was in the ACC's lobbying disclosure reports, and the numbers just literally jumped off the page in terms of their spending. So you have to file these quarterly reports. And for the last quarter of 2022, the fourth quarter of 2022, the ACC paid $130,000 to its top lobbying firm, DLA Piper. They have two other lobbying firms, Elmendorf Ryan and Marshall and & Pop. And I've talked about those in other episodes. But DLA Piper is kind of driving the train here. And it's also a law firm. So a lot of these lobbying firms, they're a full-service law firm that offers lobbying services. But they spent $130,000 in the fourth quarter of 2022. Just recently, they filed their report for the first quarter of 2023, guess how much they spent in the first quarter of 2023? $240,000. They've nearly doubled their lobbying uh, spending. And I can't wait to see what the disclosure reports are going to look like for, for this quarter and then, and then the next quarter. We're talking about spending this just going through the roof. I looked at the SECs. Uh, they have Aiken Gump, the number two ranked lobbying firm in all of Washington, D.C. Their quarterly amount from the fourth quarter of 2022 to the first quarter of 2023 jacked up a little bit as well. So, I mean, that's evidence of the emphasis that the Power Five and the NCAA are putting on their congressional campaign. And we're going to be keeping an eye on that. But let me just now talk about the, these bills, these four bills. And I've been looking at this going back to 2019 and all the bills that came out in 2020, 2021. And there's nothing in the record so far that even comes close to this level of activity. And you had some bills kind of drip out through 2020 and into 2021. Four bills in basically three weeks. I mean, that's off the charts. That's next level when it comes to the, the focus that the Power Five and NCAA have gotten senators and representatives to have on this single issue. And there, there's a lot of important stuff going on in the world right now and in the United States of America. But consistently, the NCAA and Power Five, through the power of the mythology, the power of Power Five football, the, the power of college sports in America, they have been able to get Congress to listen to them and grant them an audience whenever the NCAA and Power Five need to go to them. And that happened during COVID. So the NCAA and Power Five and their lobbyists were able to get three hearings in the summer of 2020 in the heat of COVID when the rest of the country was shut down and the entire world was on lockdown. But the NC freaking double A and the Power Five conferences got the United States Senate to drop their business three times to listen to their arguments to eliminate the athletes' rights movement. That's the kind of response that the United States Senate and the House of Representatives have, particularly from representatives and senators that have big Power Five products in their state. And the lobbying movement's kind of moving through that lens now, the, the Power Five lens, and it is formidable and it is vast and wide. But let me just zip through these bills. The, the first one came out on May 19th, and that is from Lindsey Graham, a Republican senator from South Carolina. And he put out a bill titled the College Sports Nil Clearinghouse Act of 2023. Then on May 24th, we have a twofer. We had two bills come out in the House of Representatives. The first one is a bipartisan bill 
that is sponsored by Mike Carey, Republican from Ohio, and Greg Landsman, Democrat from Ohio. This is an actual proposal. It's been through the vetting process. And the reason that this one was easier to get out as a proposal is that it is virtually identical to a bill that came out in September of 2020 and then re-released in April of 2021, the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill. Both have the same name, the Student Athlete Level Playing Field Act. So this is a knockoff. This Carrie Landsman bill is a knockoff of the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill. And it has virtually the same coverage, same terms. The same day, Gus Bilirakis, Republican representative from Florida, introduced a bill titled the Fairness, Accountability, and Integrity in Representation of College Sports Act, or the Fair College Sports Act. You got to love that. All these Orwellian titles, these are just really comical. And, and just a couple of days ago, apparently this was a leak. I don't think that that this was intended to, to be in the public domain. And I'm not really sure it's in the public domain. I, I have some folks who send me stuff, and, and I, I got this a couple of days ago. But Tommy Tuberville and Joe Manchin, uh, Tuberville is a Republican senator from Alabama, Manchin, Democrat senator from West Virginia. They released a draft bill titled Protecting Athletes, Schools, and Sports Act of 2023. And this Tuberville Mansion bill was expected. They've been talking about putting together some legislation for a while. And even though it's technically bipartisan, Joe Manchin's pretty conservative and he is childhood friends with Nick Saban. <laughs> I think Manchin is channeling Saban. But it's important to understand that the Graham bill, the Bilirakis bill, and the Tuberville Mansion bill are in discussion draft form right now. So it's not clear what these bills are going to look like. I, I understand from one of my contacts that Bill Arrakis is kind of on the end of his discussion and getting feedback from stakeholders, and he's about to put something out. And one of the important things to keep an eye on is whether Bill Arrakis and Graham and uh, Tuberville Mansion can get more bipartisan co-sponsorship particularly with the Bill Arrakis bill. He's really been leading the charge here. He was chair of the subcommittee that held that hearing in March of 2023, just a few months ago. That was a dog and pony show. That was an embarrassing hearing. And, and I think really a lot of people watched that and said, what the hell is going on here? And you know, I did some episodes on that because what's going on here is the same thing that's been going on since 2019, but nobody's paid attention to it. But a couple of the, uh, the features of all of these bills that are they're important, I think, is that they come at this with a very narrow focus. And I think the goal, the short-term goal here prior to the 2024 elections for the Republicans is just to get their foot in the door with some piece of legislation as narrow as they can get to cross this Rubicon that Congress has uh, traditionally not wanted to cross into the substantive uh, regulation of college sports and federal legislation that goes to that. And if they can get that now, they can tread water until 2024, and if we have a unified Republican federal government, it's game, set, match, and they're going to come in with a bill that just finishes everything off. But these bills that came out just in the last month, all four of them, disguise a little bit, preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees. And like the Graham bill and the, the Bill Arrakis bill and even the, the Tuberville Mansion bill, it's not in your face preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees. It's disguised a little bit. And they've thrown in some new shiny objects. That's the other thing I've been saying for a long time now. Going in with nil isn't going to cut it because that was your excuse in 2019. We're going to get these athletes some nil compensation, but only, only if we get these three federal protections and immunities that would allow us to do nothing on nil. So, you know, that train has left the station. 
and they can't come back and say, oh, we're going to offer these athletes nil compensation. What they're saying now is that this new, less regulated nil market that they never wanted to exist and that they want to try to pull back on, it's a problem. And we need some protection from Congress to get it under control. So what they've done is they've just thrown in uh, a couple of new shiny objects that make it look as if these are new things that need Congress's attention. I said that that should have been their approach two years ago, but they need to offer something meaningful and they haven't done that. So what have they done? I'll use the Tuberville Mansion because it tries to include some of these new things that they think will get Congress's attention that they can pitch as progressive and good for athletes and new things that absolutely need a fresh look here, but they're meaningless. They're worthless. They're recycled, shiny objects, or they're new things that have no consequence because they already exist. That's what Jerry Moran did with his bill in 2021, February 2021. He threw in some shiny objects that were worthless because they were things that either already existed for Power 5 interests or were scheduled to come into existence. So again, it's an illusion. These bills are an illusion. So, so let me just give you a quick tour of this Tuberville Mansion bill and some of the things that I think are important. And I think that this is going to be a bill that a lot of stakeholders are going to try to rally around because it does have that that technical bipartisan face. And it also has some features that were echoed by Charlie Baker in his comments at this symposium. But one of the first things that just jumped out to me as I'm looking through this, this Tuberville Mansion bill is that it, in its definitions, it defines third parties as anybody who's doing a, a nil contract, agent booster, collective, and there's this statement that says under Section 3, third parties, says a third party may only promote an intercollegiate athletics program, assist with recruiting, or assist with providing benefits to recruits, enrolled student athletes, or the family members of enrolled student athletes if the third party is formally associated with an institution of higher education through an official contract. So what does that mean? I think what it means is that the universities are going to be gatekeepers on who athletes can actually do business with. And when you look at how the name, image, and likeness market has evolved, and you have the same people like Learfield, now you have this new Altius group trying to get in with the Power Five and have these kind of exclusive deals, you see that the universities are exerting under this bill extraordinary control. And I think that has the potential to limit athletes' rights. But I thought that was a really interesting requirement here. Then there's some stuff about the transfer for portal. Then they come to the uniform standard contract. This is a, a new thing, it's like this new emergency thing that is crucial to a nil market that has integrity. We need a uniform standard contract. Charlie Baker talked about that in this symposium. And only the federal government can give us a uniform standard contract, which is ridiculous on its face. But let me just go through what this section five says to just point out how illusory it is. So it says, student athlete may, may only enter into a name, image, or likeness contract that one is in writing and signed by each party, two includes the names of each party, three outlines the scope of work to be performed by the student athlete, four states the timeline for the performance of such work, five states the compensation to be provided to the student athlete, six describes the duration of the contract, and seven and this is my favorite provision, conforms with the format of the standard contract template developed by the National Collegiate Athletic Association under 9 sub A, 4 sub B. So 
what they're saying is that this is a new justification for congressional engagement and action because we need protective federal legislations that will dictate the terms of this standard form contract to protect athletes and universities and consumers and all this garbage. But the fact of the matter is, in their, their definition here, they already acknowledged that the NCAA has a standard form contract and a template for this. And you don't need the federal government to do this for you. It's silly on its face, but that's what I meant earlier about putting some new stuff in here, even if it's meaningless. They think that's what they need to get Congress to take the bait here. And it's not much. So the the new shiny objects are going to be as meaningless as they possibly can be, but may appear as new things to get Congress to look a little bit closer. Then they have the transparency provisions, and it's a documentary strip search for agents, athletes, nil collectives, third-party nil contractors. But none of these transparency requirements apply to the schools or the conferences or the NCAA. Transparency is a one-way street. It always has been, and this bill is no different there. Then we get to this really interesting section titled, this is Section 7, Additional Protections for Student-Athletes. This is the shiny object uh, provision where they're trying to throw some stuff in here to make it look like they're doing some really important stuff here for the student-athlete. So here are the things, the additional things, the shiny objects that they're throwing in here. One, educational resources on name, image, and likeness. Every school in the FBS offers educational resources on name, image, and likeness. The NCAA and the conferences offer educational resources. Those already exist. Making them a federal requirement is meaningless. Number two, let's see. Wait, did I miss one here? Oh, yes. I'm sorry, I did. Financial literacy, same thing. Everybody's providing financial literacy. And that goes beyond the Power Five and FBS. Schools across the NCAA landscape, lower level Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, they're offering all this stuff. Not a big deal. They don't really give specific requirements here. It just says, do these things. Then the third thing, trust fund. Boy, when you hear trust fund, what does that suggest to you? That means, wow, we're, we're going to do something important for these athletes. It's going to be a financial benefit. And it is a trust fund. There's magic to that phrase because it suggests that these athletes are going to be taken care of and we're going to have a fiduciary relationship between the people who are responsible for for those trust issues and that trust money and the beneficiaries of of that uh, trust fund. So here's what it basically says. The organizers of any revenue-generating collegiate-level tournament or playoff shall deposit not less than 1% of annual proceeds from such events into a trust fund to be managed in a manner determined by the National Collegiate Athletic Association for the purpose of covering the costs of A, travel to sporting events for the immediate family of student-athletes, B, any out-of-pocket medical expenses relating to any injury or illness sustained as a result of participation in intercollegiate athletics until the later of, one, the athlete turns 28 or eight years after eligibility is expired. Then there are conditions for these medical benefits. First, not later than seven days after the date on which the last regular season of the sport of the student-athlete ends, complete a physical examination with the Institution of Higher Education, and then B, you have to graduate. All these benefits, the travel expenses, the out-of-pocket medical expenses, those already exist at the Power 5 level. They've been using different 
NCAA funds to, to pay for the travel expenses. But this notion of the out-of-pocket medical expenses, a lot of Power 5 schools do this for two years post-graduation. You have some discretion. You have to prove that the injury is the result of your athletics participation. You have this physical seven days after the end of the season, very short window there. You have to graduate. So this is like an insurance policy that has a bunch of exclusions. But the actual benefit is an illusion because all they're paying for are out-of-pocket medical expenses. So if an athlete has other insurance, whether it's private or public, that pays the expenses, this benefit only goes to those out-of-pocket expenses that aren't covered by any other insurance. Again, it already exists for the Power Five and for schools that have to adopt it uh, where it doesn't already exist. It's really not that big of a deal. And with the limitations, there aren't going to be that many athletes who actually use that benefit. And I think as uh, Tuberville and Manchin and all the usual suspects come out and praise this bill as this amazing new thing, we should be asking the question, show us the data on these programs that already exist, these out-of-pocket medical expense programs that go for two years, not six years, that already exist. How many athletes have actually used that benefit. That should be the starting point here before we get all lathered up about this as a shiny new object that really has any benefit to athletes. And then the last thing under the new athlete bells and whistles and the new shiny objects is scholarship protection. Well, the Power Five already have scholarship protection. It's voluntary right now, so I guess this would make it mandatory, but that's not that big of a deal. And what did we learn from the Deion Sanders, the primetime kind of mass extinction of the existing Colorado football roster, that when he was pushing those kids out, he did it openly. He said, you're not good enough to play here. Get the hell out of here. Colorado had this scholarship protection plan in place, but that ignores the reality of the fact that most athletes want to play football or want to play basketball, whatever the sport is. And if they can't play because the coach doesn't want them on the field, it's very unlikely that they're going to stay at that institution just to get their degree. Most of them are going to transfer, and that's exactly what happened at Colorado. It just reflects the reality that this relationship has virtually nothing to do with education. It's about sports and the interests of the institutions to use sports for their institutional benefits and for athletes to have the opportunity to play. That's that's what they want to do. They want to play. So again, the scholarship protection thing is just total BS. Then then we get to enforcement. (laughs) Again, this is just unbelievable. So a lot of these bills, they, they have a commission or some federal corporation or maybe a new office of the Federal Trade Commission. They run a lot of this stuff through the FTC. In almost all these bills, the NCAA Power 5 friendly bills, you wind up having the NCAA bureaucracy either replicated through a, a different federal agency or corporation, or you have the NCAA kind of just brought in by stealth and very carefully disguised, but that's not what this Stuberville Mansion bill does. So to enforce the requirements of this law, the NCAA is named as the primary enforcement entity, and it's responsible for conducting investigations and audits, and it's also responsible for imposing penalties. So they have just wholesale incorporated the NCAA infractions and enforcement process. They have federalized it. They have deputized the NCAA infractions and enforcement process as federal agents to do the bidding of the federal government under this bill. That's just breathtaking. And it also 
flies in the face of all this criticism that's come out recently, including from SEC interests of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process. You know, we had this National Accountability Act that was introduced in the House by a representative from Tennessee. It had bipartisan support. You had representatives, I think, from California and, and maybe Florida as well. Then we had a companion bill just a year later that was a bipartisan bill introduced by Democrat Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey and Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn from, from Tennessee. So you had SEC kind of putting the NCAA in, in its crosshairs in the infractions and enforcement process. Now we have the wholesale incorporation of that corrupt process into a federal bill. So again, we'll see how people talk about this thing when it comes out in its final form. Okay, before I leave these bills, I guess there's a couple more things I want to point out about that mansion, Tuberville bill. First, it's not clear where this money's coming from for this medical trust fund. They speak in terms of tournaments. It's not clear to me what exactly that means, whether this includes the CFP money, whether it includes ball money. So I'm going to hold off on commenting about some of the potential math issues until we get a better sense of where this money might come from. Then another thing in this bill, and as I read it, athletes wouldn't be able to enter into nil deals, wouldn't be eligible for nil deals until after their first semester of college, which of course is a substantial limitation on their rights and their economic freedom. But it, it solves, at least in the NCAA's mind, this issue about athletes entering into nil contracts while they're still in high school that could be a recruiting inducement. It'll be interesting to see if that gets pushed back. And then the final and most important thing here is that this trust fund money is going to be managed by the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And that is a huge, huge problem. We're going to trust the NCAA with what looks to me like a slush fund. Because while they have investigatory and audit responsibilities, then to report back on how they have enforced these requirements under the bill against all the bad actors. I didn't see anything in that bill that requires a financial audit. Look, the NCAA has no business getting anywhere near that money. We have no idea what's going on at the NCAA national office. And as I'm going to discuss here in a second, the IRS has very little curiosity about that black hole and the ridiculous spending that goes on behind the administrative veil. So now I guess that's a good segue into this IRS memo that came out on May 23rd, just a few weeks ago. And it was in the midst of this flurry of bills. And it's a really interesting document. And it has red flags all over it. And I, I probably should have said this at the very beginning of the episode. There are three filters that I use in, in, in analyzing these kinds of things. One, you can't just look at one thing in isolation in the college sports world. You have to look at what's happening at or about the same time. And, and normally there are connections there. The second is that almost everything we here comes from people who have a vested financial interest in the broader college sports industrial complex. And then the third thing is you cannot be too cynical. It's impossible to be too cynical about the motivations of the, the people that are operating in this space, these powerful interests, and the interconnection of interests in the big-time college sports marketplace. So let's look real quick at this memo, May 23rd, again, in the heat of all the stuff going on in Washington, D.C., and, and the blitzkrieg on athletes' rights. This is what's called an, an advice memorandum. It does not have the force of law. 
And I'm not a tax lawyer. I didn't do tax work. And it's an arcane area of the law. And I'm going to probably talk about this more at some point once I talk to my tax people and get a sense of what this really means. And the bottom line here is that the IRS says that these nonprofit collectives, which tell their donors that they can deduct the contributions to the collective, are not really operating consistent with a nonprofit purpose, basically saying that you can't really operate as a nonprofit. You need to operate like the other collectives as a profit collective. And in the grand scheme of, of things in college sports right now, this is a pimple on an elephant's butt. It's not that big of a deal. And so my, my first question was, why in the world did the IRS take on this issue at this time? Why now and why this? Of all of the things that the IRS could be uh, looking at from a, a tax perspective in the big-time college sports business model, this is where they start? This is where they land? It just doesn't, didn't make sense to me. That was one of the red flags. But I, I went back and just did a, a, a bit of research on the, these advice memoranda. The, there is a list on the IRS website of all, they're called AMs. So all these AMs are listed and I went back three years to, to 2020, and I'm thinking, well, maybe this happens all the time. Maybe they're always churning these things out. And that's not true at all. So in, let's see, let's just do 20, 2021, 2022, 2023. So in 2021, through the entire year, there were only four advice memos that went out. Only four. Then in 2022, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven. In the entire year. So far in 2023, there have been four. There must be some criteria for deciding whether an issue, a tax issue, is important enough to make this very short list. I don't get it. I don't get how nonprofit collectives make it to the top of this list. This doesn't have the force of law. In fact, at the very beginning of the memo, the authors say, this document may not be used or cited as precedent. So this is a policy statement, similar in some ways to the Jennifer Abruzzo memo from the NLRB on September, what was that, September 29th of 2021 on the misclassification issue and student-athlete issue, athletes as employees. So that was an important memo. It was an important issue. And it was a big issue for the NLRB. Is this a big issue for the IRS? So I see this and I'm thinking, if the IRS really wants to do something significant with respect to big time college sports, it should be asking about the Power Five's claims of nonprofit status with respect to its football and men's basketball products. That discussion has been going on for decades. And now with the money that's pouring into the system and the separation, further separation of the athletic world from the university world, those arguments are more powerful now than they have ever been. And remember in 2005, Bill Thomas, a House of Representatives member, Republican from California and chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, he sent a letter to Miles Brand, then NCAA president, saying, look, your football and men's basketball products are obviously professionalized. They're profit-seeking enterprises, and they are inconsistent with your nonprofit status. The IRS didn't get involved, but the House Ways and Means Committee did. And academic writers have been looking at that issue forever. And Miles Brand's response to that and formulation and conceptualization of the collegiate model 
was in part directed to respond to that criticism by saying that the educational purpose and value of athletics was embedded in the overall values of higher education. Those two things were inseparable, which gave cover from this criticism that the these nonprofit entities are operating professional products and making a shit ton of money off of them. Where is that discussion? Why doesn't that take precedence over nonprofit collectives. And the other thing that the IRS could be looking at that they're not looking at here are the excessive nonprofit salaries of NCAA executives. I mean, their salaries are so far outside of anything that would be deemed reasonable in the nonprofit world. They're begging for an investigation. They're begging for an explanation. Where the hell is the IRS on that? And then the third thing, nonprofit entities, 501c3 entities. And all of the conferences are 501c3s. The NCAA is a 501c3. The universities are 501c3s. You're not supposed to engage in lobbying activity. What the NCAA has been doing, really, since 2019, through a variety of pathways, is to act as a lobbying machine. And that came out in an undeniable way with the State of the Association speeches in January of 2023, when Linda Livingstone and Charlie Baker openly appealed to NCAA Nation through utilitarian arguments that had a dog whistle component to them that stakeholders needed to get off their butts and get engaged politically and lobby for the three things that the NCAA and Power Five need to shut down the athletes' rights movement. Preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employed. Linda Livingstone asked for those three things explicitly. 501c3s aren't supposed to do that. Now, and there are some tests that the NCAA and Power Five are, you know, have great lawyers, and I'm, I'm sure they're going to be able to prove that they've complied with, with all those tests. But those are fundamental issues under our nonprofit tax laws. So instead of looking at those and doing a forensic accounting of the NCAA National Office, we get a memo that plays right into NCAA Power 5 narratives on nonprofit collectives. So how does it play into Power 5 nonprofit narratives? Well, some of the principles and some of the framing of the issues that the authors of this memo used came right out of the NCAA Power Fives playbook. And I'm just going to talk about one of them because I saw this and I'm just thinking, what the hell is going on here? So in, in any memo like this, where you're setting forth some kind of a legal analysis, you have to set the context, frame the context. What are the, what's the background? What are the facts? How is this market operating? Who are the actors? What, what is this all about? You, you frame the issues, then you do your analysis. Uh, so, so this uh, memo has uh, a section titled Background. It's the very first section of the memo, and it drops footnotes to support the points that it makes in framing the background. It has this sentence, and this is the first sentence of the second paragraph of background. It says, since the interim policy was adopted, many organizations generally referred to as nil collectives have been established by boosters and fans of one or more of a university's athletics programs to develop and fund or otherwise facilitate nil deals for student athletes. And that sounds like a pretty neutral statement. And they drop a footnote. What's the source for that statement? The hearing that occurred on March 29th, 2023 in the House of Representatives in a subcommittee chaired by Gus Billarakis. So they are relying on the hearing memorandum. So when you go to the archives for that hearing, you have all the relevant documents and in the House, in this committee, there is a hearing memorandum prepared by 
the majority staff. So the Republicans, because they control the House, they control the parent committee, they control the subcommittee, they get the prerogative of putting together the hearing memo, which is designed to frame the issues. It's supposed to be a fair, even-handed memo, but it is not. It is a piece of partisan advocacy. I talked about that hearing. I didn't go through the memo. There were so many aspects of that hearing that were just offensive. One of them was the way that this hearing memo was constructed. I read that thing and I thought, oh my God, that was written by Power Five lobbyists. And it was designed to lay the framework for draconian federal legislation that would give the NCAA and Power Five everything they want. And in that footnote in the IRS memo, it, it, it pulls the language from the hearing memo that, that supports the, the footnote. And, and they say, the, this is a quote, no collectives are a third-party collection of fans and boosters who pull together capital to compensate athletes who play for a given school. Over 250 collectives have been formed nationwide and nearly one-third of collectives have a nonprofit status. That sounds pretty neutral. Uh, and I'll also note in that seemingly neutral sentence, that's proof of the irrelevance of this issue. So if a third of the 250 collectives operating nationwide are nonprofit collectives, we're talking about what, 80 collectives? Actually, this doesn't even rise to the level of a pimple on an elephant's butt. This is a non-issue, which highlights, in my mind, why is the Internal Revenue Service looking at this as a major policy issue that would justify an important policy statement? that is relatively infrequent in the IRS's administration of tax law. But now let's go to the very section that, that sentence was pulled from in the hearing memo. And the title of this hearing memo from that subcommittee of House Energy and Commerce is dated March 27th, 2023, just two days before the hearing was held on March 29th. It's from the committee majority staff. It lays out the introduction, the witnesses, then there's a background section then a section titled Regulatory Uncertainty is Costing Athletes. That's not a question. That's a statement. And it is loaded with assumptions that this nil marketplace, more broadly, not just nil collectives, not just nonprofit collectives, but uh, the nil marketplace more broadly is bad news. And it's bad for everybody. And, and that was really the point of this hearing. Th there's so many aspects of this memo that are just misleading as hell. This is a piece of in-your-face advocacy loaded with misleading statements, half-truths, leading assumptions, leading questions, and it, it is geared to one purpose, and that is to shut down this nil market. But then there's this section that says, the need for federal action, areas of concern, and it lists several areas of concern. First, fair market value and transparency. They, they want to make sure that Congress can regulate these contracts for fair market value and that they're transparent. Then B, and this, this is the important one, collectives, boosters, and companies. And it's from this section that the IRS pulled that language that they used to support the framing of these issues in, in that memo. It's a very short section. It's less than 300 words. Now, let's go through that section. And you, you decide for yourself whether you think that this source is a neutral, even-handed, fair-minded source that could be used by the Internal Revenue Service to set the framework for tax policy. All right. Collectives negotiate agreements with athletes to pay them in exchange for the use of athletes' nil. 
Examples of such use include social media advertising and appearance on a commercial, autograph signing, or in the case of collectives that have taken nonprofit status, an appearance at a charitable event. Collectives extend these offers with the hope that an athlete will pick and remain at a school. They often design contract language to push players in a school's direction without being explicit enough to run afoul of NCAA rules that still ban payments as recruiting inducements. The next paragraph, this is uh, one for the record books. In the absence of formal organizational rules and transparency requirements to ensure legitimacy, rogue nil actors have seized the opportunity to earn money victimizing student athletes in the process. For example, T.A. Cunningham, a high school football player from Georgia, was promised millions of dollars by a nil company if he moved to California, where it was legal for high school athletes to earn money from nil deals. He was also promised a place to live in California and a place for his mother to live in Georgia as the family was on the brink of eviction. None of this materialized. Instead, T.A. was deemed ineligible to play in California, left homeless when the man he was staying with in California was arrested on charges of sexually assaulting a minor, and his family in Georgia was evicted. I mean, first of all, it's just loaded with scare tactics and and propaganda, but it brings in issues that have nothing to do with uh, nonprofit nil collectives. That's just one little piece of this picture that they paint that make it sound like this nil market is so corrupt and so bad that if we don't get it under control, athletes are going to wind up facing the choice of either living with a pedophile or or, or living in a homeless shelter, and their parents are going to be evicted from their houses. This is just, this is advocacy. There's no other way that you can characterize this document than as advocacy. And it is in-your-face advocacy that's just loaded with uh, false narratives. So the question remains, if you're the IRS, you're putting this thing together. I'm guessing they didn't just read that one sentence in this, what is this, a seven, eight-page memo, six-page memo, sorry. I guess they read the whole thing. And if you read this document, you can only come away with one interpretation of it. And that is that it hates this name, image, and likeness market, not just nonprofit nil collectives, that this is a terrible thing for college sports, that it's a terrible thing for athletes, and that athletes are being victimized routinely in this market, and we need to shut it down. How, how can you use that as a source if you're the IRS? I mean, it's one of those things where you look at the details underneath this headline that comes out, no collectives, nonprofit, no collectives are bad. Well, of course they are. They're silly. They they are not acting for consistent with any legitimate nonprofit purpose, just as the universities, the conferences, and the NCAA aren't acting consistently with any legitimate nonprofit purpose with respect to their professional products in football and men's basketball. So why did the IRS write this memo on this topic at this time with the supporting evidence that it used? We don't know. And we'll probably never No, but again, if you are paying attention to what's happening in Washington, D.C., I think you you would be making a big mistake to dismiss this as coincidental. I just don't think there are any coincidences in this very well-coordinated campaign. And who knows what's behind this? It just doesn't make sense. So now let's talk real quick about this symposium that was held 
on June 8th. And this was part of the assault on Congress where you had all these powerful Power Five people coming in to make the rounds in Congress. There were, I think, four panels. This was the typical college sports symposium loaded with people who have disqualifying conflicts of interest, who are benefiting from the financial status quo and the regulatory status quo. And these are kind of laundering all of those interests through a presentation that makes it look like there's some thoughtful, independent discussion going on here. You had Charlie Baker, of course, I'm going to talk about him. You had Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC, Jim Phillips, commissioner of the ACC, you had uh, Power Five presidents and chancellors, Power Five athletics directors. You had a Power Five head coach. You had Power Five friendly sports writers. They, they would occasionally pan to the crowd. Honestly, it was jarring to me. I, I shouldn't have been surprised by this because this is a, the same type of demographic you get at all of these symposiums. But I, I, I was really surprised when they panned to the crowd, uh, at number one, at how small the room was, and number two how white it was. The whiteness just jumped off the page. I took some screenshots of some of the, the different vantage points of the room. And honestly, I, I kind of felt like we were in a time machine and we traveled back to a fraternity sorority mixer from the 1950s. Wow. But this is the face of the in-system stakeholder beneficiary class in college sports. And you were you know, hitting multiple layers of that. And then another thing that just struck me as I'm watching the crowd and watching these panels is how much money was represented in that room in terms of individual salary. And I'm seeing athletics directors, I'm seeing people who are very influential and very lucrative satellite components of the business model, like Oliver Luck from Altius, who was going to be a uh, panelist, and then he just kind of got scratched at the last minute, and th that's a whole other conversation. But just between Charlie Baker, Greg Sankey, Jim Phillips, you have well over $10 million in salary. And I think if you were to calculate all of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that were sitting in that room or sitting on those panels and combined their salaries, you would be into the, obviously, into the tens of millions of dollars. And all of those people are benefiting from the status quo, and they were there to defend the status quo. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that came up. And I mentioned earlier that these people telegraph their next move, but there was a panel on conference realignment. So when I watched this thing, I didn't see all of it. I was doing other work, but I tuned into enough of it, I think, to get a fair sense of uh, what was going on there. I listened to everything that Charlie Baker had to say. But there was a panel on conference realignment. What, what does that mean? It means that they're laying the groundwork because there's going to be something big on conference realignment coming down the pike. And uh, Greg Sankey was on that panel. But the other thing, I guess, about the, the vibe that I got from this symposium was that there was like this cult-like mentality that, that exists at the NCAA, that exists in Power 5 athletics departments. It's you're either 100% with us or you're 100% against us. And you cannot speak against any narrative that we have blessed as part of the sacrament of big time college sports. And there was some discussion about the athlete voice 
and whether athletes were adequately represented. And that discussion just got shut down by people literally shouting it down and, and daring someone to criticize the Student Athlete Advisory Committee. It, it was just such an unhealthy environment, particularly, again, in the context of higher education, where you're supposed to have reasonable dis disagreements. And you'll be able to put an argument on the table that is a reasonable argument and then talk about it in a dispassionate, objective way. That doesn't happen in these rooms. And it didn't happen at this symposium. So I want to talk about a few things that Baker had to say. Three things, I guess. One was that the NCAA made a huge mistake by not changing its own rules on name, image, and likeness back in 2021 when it had promised. And I've talked all about that in the podcast. And what I viewed was just a Trojan horse, a dishonest presentation to the public that the NCAA was actually going to change its rules and had put a timeline in. It was supposed to do it by January of 2021. Then it abruptly pulled back for a manufactured made-up reason. The NCAA pulled out of voluntary rulemaking because they never intended to pass those rules. They thought they were going to have protective federal legislation that would allow them to do nothing on nil. That was their intention all along. And to this day, they, they haven't changed a single word of bylaw 12.5 that goes to the limitations on name, image, and likeness. So he was saying that was a mistake. We should have followed through. And he talked in terms of this plan B. There is no plan B. If Charlie Baker believes that the NCAA should have changed its own rules in January of 2021 and that it has been a mistake ever since then not to go back and adopt those changes, he could do that tomorrow. He could do that tomorrow. But he's not going to do that because this is all about Congress. And I guess the other thing I just want to reinforce here, Baker's up there speaking with this gravitas as if he's the real leader now. But the fact of the matter is, and this is one of these things that very few people really understand about the NCAA president, is that Charlie Baker as NCAA president doesn't have a direct relationship to the membership. He's not elected by the membership. He doesn't report to the membership. He has no direct accountability to the membership. And by membership, I'm talking about the member institutions, the 1,100 institutions across the NCAA. The NCAA president is hired by the Board of Governors. It is fired by the Board of Governors. And the NCAA president reports only to the Board of Governors. And after this constitutional makeover, that Board of Governors went from 21 voting members to nine voting members. It was stripped of most of its important functions, and it is really symbolic. And on this new Board of Governors, there are basically three people that Charlie Baker reports to. Jerry Moorhead, president of UGA, Linda Livingstone, president of Baylor University, Randy Watson, chancellor of NC State. That's it. It's a star chamber. Another comment I, that caught my eye was that Baker said, look, we, we have this unwieldy, cumbersome administrative state at the NCAA. And this was a bump and run. It was really interesting. He said, we have, uh, what was it, 1,800 committee members. And that was an interesting observation because it was an another dig at, I think, the ineffectiveness of the NCAA bureaucracy. But the flip side of that is that in reality, you have a very, very small group of powerful decision makers at the NCAA running college sports, the, you know, the voluntary regulation of college sports. And uh, you're looking at five, six, seven people. And we're, we're going to explain all that with this new project that we're doing. And we have a chart that shows all the crossover representation among all those committees, because we've gone through all of those committees and the committee structures and synthesized them and, and, and really teased out who the power players are. And it's, it's stunning 
really, a very, very small group of people. But then the other thing that Baker said that I, I think was just, it was one of those things where he says it and it's like, my God, th- this is like the Pope saying that God doesn't exist. So Baker says that he believes the NCAA and presumably the conferences, the institutions, should be diving headfirst into the sports gambling space. And and he framed that in terms of revenue generation. Because the other thing that he did, and this was another dig at Emmert, and he's absolutely right. I mean, I agree with Baker on these criticisms. But Mark Emmert and the NCAA have had a set it and forget it mentality when it comes to uh, generating revenue. They they do these long-term deals for March Madness. That's all they care about. They subordinate the interests of of other sports, notably including women's basketball, to these small contracts. But they have this long-term contract with CBS Turner to guarantee the perpetuation of the NCAA administrative state. It goes into 2032. And for 12 years, Emmert and the boys just jumped on the private NCAA jets and they put their feet up and uh, leaned back in their chair, ordered a drink, and just went along for the ride. And there was no sense that they were leaving money on the table. You know, the, the Kaplan report that came out in August of 2021, and then a companion report, the Dresser report, which really looked at the financial side of this. And this was supposed to be only about women's basketball, but they, they touched on some broader issues. But they said, and this Dresser group particularly said, you're leaving a, just a ton of money on the table. And it's almost like you have to try <laughs> to to leave that much money on the table and, and to ignore the rights and interests of female athletes. So women's basketball could be a much more lucrative product. I've been saying that for a long, long time. The Dresser Report really drilled down on that. But a piece of that Dresser Report that nobody talks about, and I have focused on this, is that it came out and said, they did a section actually on sports betting. And sports betting is the boogeyman. It has been the villain for 70 years. In fact, Walter Byers, the first NCAA president starting in 1951, the very first infractions and enforcement case he opened was against the University of Kentucky as the result of a point-shaving scandal. The NCAA since then has really placed anti-gambling as one of its primary virtues, and it has virtue signaled on that. It's the gift that just keeps giving, and every time there's some betting issue that comes up, they jump on their soapbox and they pound their chest. In 2014, they joined the professional leagues in suing the state of New Jersey under an anti-gambling law to try to prevent them from getting into the gambling space. And that case, that 2014 case, went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court struck down that federal anti-gambling law. And since then, the NCAA has been doing everything in its power to position itself to get into this space that it has been criticizing and virtue signaling on for 70 years, for crying out loud. But the Dresser Report said, look, this is a massive potential pool of revenue here. And if the Power Five get into this space, we could be talking about revenue streams of hundreds of millions of dollars. And ultimately, these could be billion-dollar revenue streams for big-time college sports interests. And they've been laying the foundation for this behind the scenes. And the NCAA, before the ink was dry on that that Supreme Court case in 2018 that struck down this federal anti-gambling law, it entered into a 10-year contract with Genius Sports, a leader in the data acquisition industry that's part, a subpart of the overall gambling industry. And Genius's business model is to go to professional leagues and now to, to the NCAA and ultimately to conferences and schools and really strip mine the data of athletes, including biometric data on on the bodily functioning of these athletes, and then selling that data to sports books to make their betting products more valuable. And that data has enormous value. 
And these people will pay top dollar for that. The NCAA jumped into a 10-year deal with Genius Sports in uh, 2018. Then in 2022, the Mid-American Conference jumped into a deal with Genius Sports. It got virtually no coverage, no coverage at all. And then the NCAA, in a quiet off-the-books ruling uh, a few months after that MAC deal, said that it was okay under NCAA rules. I've talked quite a bit about that, and I've just been shocked at how little attention this has gotten. But I want to just real quickly, before I analyze Baker's comments there, I want to just give you the episodes that I've done on this sports betting. And in March of 2022, I did episode 106, Want to Bet the NCAA's U-Turn on College Sports Gambling. April 2022, episode 112, is the Mid-American Conference's sports betting deal a Trojan horse for Power 5 mega deals. May 2022, episode 115, college sports Janus faced values. And then episode 138, November 2022, the NCAA zero integrity anti-gambling charade. So Charlie Baker is now all in. But what's interesting about this Dresser report, it does this section and says you need to jump into this. But they did that in the context of women's sports. Like this is a way to generate revenue for women's basketball. But there was a Title IX gender equity sort of feel to the way that they presented that issue. And that's how the NCAA and Power Five are going to sell this, ultimately. When they come out of the closet on this and they say, we're just going to go all in, and I think that's what Baker was doing here, laying the foundation for that at this symposium, they're going to wrap it up in gender equity and say, this is going to be great for female athletes. And it may be, but this doesn't have a damn thing to do with integrity. And all this virtue signaling that the NCAA does on its uh, gambling issue. And then and the yeah. other thing I, I would just say is that there was no discussion. So he, he says this. <laughs> he says this uh, incredible thing that should have been front page news around the country because it's such a U-turn on their value system. It's as if he was just giving you the time of day. But what's important about the deals that they are talking about here. And this is true with the MAC deal. And we haven't seen any of these deals. NCAA hasn't disclosed its deal with Genius. and won't even talk about it. And, and, and nobody at this symposium called him out on that. There was no discussion about, wait a minute, listen to what this guy just said. And the thing that, that really concerns me and that I talked about in these episodes on sports gambling is that the athletes don't have any protection the way this sports gambling market is evolving in college sports. They are having their fundamental rights violated. And there is a whole range of rights here that are at issue. You have privacy rights, obviously. You have basic rights to protect your body, you know, bodily integrity, intellectual property rights, a whole panoply, federal laws that could be invoked here. But the way that the NCAA and Power Five are going about this marketplace, it's grab the money first, ask the questions later. That's the way these people think. And the athletes' rights here, they're not even on the table. And that's a problem. So that's a good segue into a discussion of these letters from the divisional SAC committees, the Student Athlete Advisory Committees, which are the only official student athlete voice that the NCAA listens to. And the reason for that is that they have absolute control over those committees. And I'm going to talk about this Division I letter because there's some interesting uh, features there. But as a threshold matter, on this athlete voice issue, which came up at this symposium, it's so important to understand this basic fact. Athletes are not members of the NCAA. They have no right to be heard. They have no right to have representation in, in all these boards and committees. And that 
committee structure, the SAC structure, it exists at the pleasure and the discretion of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And it has been used, in my judgment, to commandeer the athlete voice. And it has happened repeatedly since 2019 through this campaign in Congress. There was a letter in 2019, October of 2019. We are the 100% from the Division I SAC. And that body is supposed to have 32 uh, members, one from each conference. And, you know, historically, it's been disproportionately populated by white athletes and non-revenue athletes. And you've had substantially more female representation than male representation. It is not a representative body. And Mark Emmert said as much in a bizarre interview in 2022 where he said, they aren't truly re representative and we don't have enough minority representation and we don't have enough representation among Power 5 football and men's and women's basketball. And there's no question about that. Where the hell has Emmer been on that, by the way? But the NCAA holds out these SAC committees as the athlete voice. And then in connection with hearings in the House in September of 2021, and then this one just recently in March of 2023, members of those committees, Republican members, Jeff Duncan, Republican from South Carolina, Gus Bilirakis, Republican from Florida, held up letters from the Atlantic Coast Conference SAC as the student voice. Those letters just have red flags all over the place. And these letters were held up, literally held up by Duncan and Bill Arrakis as the athlete voice. And Bill Arrakis said, don't listen to me, listen to these athletes. These athletes know what they're talking about. And th that discussion is off limits. You can't criticize this committee because people go ballistic because they know that, that they're using these committees for political purposes. So they don't want people coming in and poking around and, and turning over the rocks and looking at what's really going on here. And, and I want to be clear, I am not criticizing the athletes that serve on these committees. I believe that they are serving in good faith and they believe that they're doing what they think is the right thing in the context of this committee structure. But the fact of the matter is they are invited guests and they have no independent standing to to get their message on the table. But I want to talk about this SAC letter from Division One. So you, you had a person, a guy named Cody Shimp, who was a baseball player at St. Bonaventure University, but he's a graduate assistant right now. There are supposed to be 32 members on this Division One SAC. I went to the website, the NCAA website. They're actually only 19, and there hasn't been a meeting. They have the meeting minutes for, for this national SAC organization. There hasn't been a meeting since January of 2023. So I'm asking myself, when I go through this letter, you're going to say, wait a minute, this is pretty detailed, deep in the weeds stuff. There had to have been, had to have been a trail of foundation laid for the athletes to have this level of understanding of these issues and then present them to the United States Congress. And when you go back and you look at the committee minutes going back to 2021, there's zero discussion about the congressional campaign or any specific aspect of it. And it's only signed by this one gentleman. None of the other members signed. I want to talk a little bit about it. It is, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, five pages long. And it is written like a legal memorandum. Honestly, I can try to couch my description of this in some way that sort of gives the benefit of the doubt to the possibility that Mr. Shimp just woke up one morning a couple weeks ago and put together a legal memorandum that a lot of law students might not fully understand. And, he, and then he popped it off effortlessly to 12 different members of Congress in both chambers. Maybe that happened. I don't think that happened. But rather than going down that road, 
I guess I will just point out the, what's in this letter, and then you can decide for yourself. So let me just talk about the structure of this letter. There's some things that are just interesting to me. So it's addressed to 12 people. The address is both the House and the Senate, six in the House, six in the Senate. And you, the first question is, why those people? And their role in Congress isn't identified. Their, their committee role isn't identified. But these 12 people are very important. And this message is strategically targeted to them because these are the committees through which the NCAA would get preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees. So the, the author of this letter had to have known that these 12 people were the chair or the ranking member in the House and the Senate of these three crucial committees and sent the letter to those people and had it already their contact information, and this letter got moved to the front of the line. So just for example, the first line the, of people on the address line, you have Maria Cantwell and Ted Cruz, both senators, uh, Cantwell, Democrat from Washington, Cruz, Republican from uh, Texas. So, so why are they on the line? It just says, so for example, with Cantwell, it says the Honorable Maria Cantwell, U.S. Senate, the 318 318 Cannon House Office Building, Washington, D.C., 2515. doesn't say as chair of the Commerce Committee. It's just her basic address. But the reason that Cantwell and Cruz received this is that she's chair of the Commerce Committee. Cruz is, is the ranking member, you know, the Republican minority member of that committee. And this is the most important committee in Congress. And this is where any athlete legislation, any nil legislation is going to originate, I think, and come out of. This This is where the rubber meets the road. So how does Mr. Shimp know that? <laughs> and then we have the House Companion to Commerce. Then we have the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and then the House Companion Committee. Why that? Because that's where you get your no employee provision. Then the last two address lines are to the Senate and House Judiciary Committees and the chairman and the ranking member. Why judiciary? Because that's where you get antitrust immunity. So we have to believe that the author of this letter knew who all these people were, what committees they represent, and that they were the appropriate people to, to, to deal with the substance of the letter. And then it, it just goes through all of the talking points, explicitly making the case for the three things that the NCAA and Power Five have wanted since 2019. And what's interesting about that is that there's really not much of a disguise. They don't actually use some of the buzz phrases like antitrust immunity. They use safe harbor. But they're asking for these three things, and they go through all the talking points on the student-athlete and the collegiate model and amateurism and all that stuff. They have in bold type, Student-athletes should not be employees of their institution. And then they talk about the consequences of employee status. And they list, let's see, four things. And I just want to read one of them because it's noteworthy. So it's titled Amateurism and Fair Play. It says, Amateurism is a founding principle of college sports, distinguishing it from professional sports. Maintaining the non-employee status reinforces the ideals of amateurism, fair play, and equal opportunity for all student-athletes. Preserving non-employee status also helps institutions maintain compliance with Title IX. By treating all student-athletes as participants in a non-employment capacity, institutions can ensure fairness and equity in resource allocation and athletic opportunities. There are some really important concepts buried in that. The Title IX theme, the uh, collegiate model and participation opportunities to put together this bullet point. 
this talking point requires a very sophisticated understanding of all of the sub-narratives that drive this propaganda talking point. Did uh, Mr. Shimp have that level of understanding? I don't know. You know, we don't know, but it would be nice to know. And I think the athletes on whose behalf he's writing this letter have a right to know. So there are 192,000 Division I athletes in the NCAA. I'm not sure that what's contained in this letter accurately represents the views of all of those people. So again, this letter just has red flags all over it. And this is being sold as the athlete voice. So now the last thing that I, I want to talk about, and this was part of this blitzkrieg, were these public relations things that came out of nowhere. And these also were on June 11th and 12th, right at the time that these three letters from the SAC committees made their way to 12 people in the United States Congress. And uh, these were two things that happened at a, about the same time. And I believe these were targeted to the White House. These were targeted to the executive branch and to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So the NCAA created a new holiday out of thin air, and it held its first college athlete day. And it was, was a big celebration. And this was an opportunity to allow the championship teams across all three divisions to go to Washington and meet with Biden and or Harris. It, it looks like uh, Kamala Harris was the lead on this. It's not clear if Biden was even there, but the, the NCAA website has this big splash page on the gateway page and this big photo showing Kamala Harris with a championship trophy with a with an athlete and Charlie Baker standing there and you have all these smiling athletes in the background. And again, th this is the inaugural college athlete day. Do you think that it's coincidental that we're celebrating college athlete day for the first time on June 12th of 2023? I, I don't. And in conjunction with that, the NCAA decided that they were going to celebrate United States presidents who had played intercollegiate sports. And they go through, I don't know, maybe 10 former U.S. presidents who played college sports, ranging from Joe Biden to Woodrow Wilson and everybody in between. And what's interesting, the way they present this, uh, let's see, did they give this thing a name? No, they say, from the field to the Oval Office, celebrate College Athlete Day at the White House with this list of former college athletes turned presidents. It was part of the rollout of College Athlete Day. And, and they have, again, another big splash on the Gateway page. There's a photo of Gerald Ford, who played football at Michigan. There's a photo of George H.W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, who played baseball for Yale. And what are the, what's the messaging here? And this is really important. This is built around a patriotic theme. So going to the White House to celebrate the achievements of national champions, then tying the those achievements to the U.S. presidents who have played college sports. They're, they're drawing in this patriotism theme, which they've been so effective at propagandizing because they want people to believe that their business model is uh, as American as apple pie on the 4th of July. And they want the American public and more importantly now the United States Congress to believe that their business models aligned with American values and nothing could be further from the truth. Their compensation limits are un-American. They restrict American liberties. And the things that they're asking for from Congress would make it impossible 
for athletes to enjoy all of the freedoms that most other Americans take for granted. All of these things together are just, uh, wow. What's happened over the last month is unlike anything that's ever happened in the history of college sports at the regulatory level, and it's really important. And it is not over. It is not over. It's going to continue. These people aren't going away, and these lobbyists are going to be really pressed into full gear. And you, you saw what the ACC is doing. They're paying twice as much this quarter as they did last quarter for their lobbying campaign. And you're going to see the same thing, I think, with the other Power Five conferences and the NCAA. These people are in a mentality where failure is not an option. The, the congressional option cannot fail, and they've put all their eggs in that basket, and it's just not going away. I just want to, this has been a long episode, but covering two months of stuff here. There are so many other things I could have talked about that I didn't, but I wanted to focus on this, this Blitzkrieg and, and how breathtaking it is and how unprecedented it is. I guess I will throw in just one last thought, and that is that we are coming up now on some important anniversaries and milestone events that have occurred in this period 2019 to the present when the NCAA and Power Five went on offense in Congress and really kind of started this whole mess. But we have the Austin anniversary coming up. It'll be two years on June 21st since the Austin ruling. We have the anniversary of the NCAA and Power Five's last ditch attempt in the Senate in 2021 to get preemption to prevent this no market from coming into existence and to prevent six state laws from going into effect on July 1st. And a consequence of that was this interim policy that I talked about earlier. So you know, there's going to be a lot of reflection in the commentary. It's going to be real interesting to see how some of that's pitched. But this, in my judgment, is just another opportunity for the NCAA and the Power Five and their lobbyists and their lawyers and all their satellite minions to go on offense and use this as a chance to talk about how terrible things are now and how the last two years have just been fraught with chaos and uncertainty and only Congress can solve our problems. So we'll see what happens there. With that, I'm going to close this thing out. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 